pray together, church. Father, we do love you. And we thank you because you have given us your word in which you have revealed to us that you love us. Father, this is not a reality that we've had to, to concoct from life, desire, and hope, but rather a truth that we see made clear in your word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Father, we love you. And we pray, God, that now as we study your word, that you would remind us of your deep love for us. Father, that you would remind us of the beauty of your gospel, of our great need for your presence, leading, guiding, correcting, filling. Lord, we pray that you would guide this time that follows. Lord, would you guard error from my lips. Lord, would you allow us to hear your truth and would your spirit who inspired your word, Lord, move in our hearts and enable us to see what you would want us to see about your great gospel this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Judges chapter 10? This morning, Judges 10. Last week, we noted the grace in God's judgment. And yes, grace in God's judgment as he fulfilled the curse of Jotham, son of Gideon, against his brother Abimelech, the destroyer of Israel, who despite being an Israelite, oppressed God's people, demonstrating the truth that in his great salvation, God's great salvation, he used both outsiders and insiders to reveal his people's sin and their need of a Savior. We also saw how God in this grace wouldn't allow evil to win, as in the end, if you recall, Shechem and Abimelech destroyed one another. And today, we arrive at an intermission of sorts. If you've noticed in our bulletins the reminder of what text is upcoming, then you likely experienced the study of that this past week and thought, wow, that's strange. Because it is an intermission of sorts where the subjects of our story today are likely judges you've never heard of or you wouldn't be able to pick them out of a crowd even if you had to. Tola and Jair are names I doubt that you have heard often. I've never met a Tola or Jair. To be fair, I've never met an Abimelech or a host of other of the unique biblical names that we encounter. But the point is that the individuals we'll be encountering today are not well known because little is given us about their person and rule. And for this reason, both are considered by scholars of the scriptures to be minor judges, where minor is a description of the volume of material that the scriptures provide for these men and not the significance of their role in Israel's story. So in the same way as we have major and minor prophets, major being those such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, with longer books, shorter being those of Hosea through Malachi, considered minor judges, so too their major and minor judges, with the major being leaders as we've seen with Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, and then minor like Shamgar, whom we associated with Ehud. And now, together today, we see Tola and Jair, who I believe in some ways can be likened to Zachary Taylor and Millard Fillmore. Is anybody familiar with Zach and Millard? Okay, I figured that would be the case. Few are, but those history enthusiasts among us, American history enthusiasts, and even then it somewhat depends on your period of historical interest. But Zach and Millard, like Tola and Jair, were men of great import in their day as both 
served as president of the United States. Who knew that? Yeah, a couple of you guys wise. Yeah, fair enough. That's Google will tell you that if you're quick enough with your thumbs, I know. But Zachary Taylor served our nation as president from 1849 to 50, and he was succeeded by Millard Fillmore from 1850 to 53. So two men of great significance in their day, but today very few of us know who they are. And I think we can see that very similarly in Tola and Jair. So let's meet Tola and Jair now together. I'm going to read from Judges 10, beginning with verse 1, where our author informs us, After the time of Abimelech, man of Issachar, Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shamir. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, to which to this day are called Havoth Jair. When Jair died, he was buried in Kaman. May God bless the public reading of his word. This is why Tola and Jair are considered minor judges. And as one commentator notes, you usually learn more about a person from their newspaper obituary than you can gather from these brief verses. And yet, I believe that our author included these stories, short as they are, for both of these judges to remind us of two powerful gospel truths, with the first being how grace follows failure. Grace follows failure. Failure. Did you notice how chapter 10 begins there? After the time of Abimelech. Now this phrase sets the stage for all. And granted, there's not much. But for all that we're about to encounter. And just, just so we're all on the same page here. This time of Abimelech wasn't a reference to Israel's golden age. Those who were with us last week, you'll remember how Abimelech's rule was. It marked a whole new low in the promised land. The son of Gideon's concubine from Shechem, Abimelech was a crafty, highly motivated man who decided to make a push for the presidency, so to speak. And following his father's death, we saw together how Abimelech approached his city's gentry and as an any, so-called, proposed that he lead them solo rather than having Shechem submit to the 70 Audis, if you will, who were his brothers. And it didn't take Shechem long, as we saw, to see this, the logic and the simplicity in Abimelech's suggestion. And so they became complicit in the man's coup, providing him with the resources to hire a band of thugs who promptly went to Afra and executed Abimelech's entire family. Now, such behavior should have sent shockwaves throughout Israel. But despite previous signs, as we've noted, of shared Canaanite depravity, God's people's apparent silence revealed they had reached an adir. Because if you think back to when we began our study, if you were with us, Judges 3, the first judge or deliverer that we examined was who? Othniel. Othniel. And as a savior, Othniel was the son of Kenaz, who was Caleb's younger brother, and a man of impeccable character. In his leadership of Israel, we were told that the Spirit of the Lord came on Othniel, and he became Israel's judge. Now, did Israel sin? Yes, they did. Did they forget the Lord and worship Canaan's idols? Absolutely. But look at the leader that God raised up. Othniel was a man of integrity and valor. And then following Othniel, we met Ehud, who saved Israel, true, but who used trickery and lies, and who's he's not described as being filled by God's Spirit. And following Ehud, we had Shamgar. He wasn't even an Israelite in all probability. And then we had Barak, who despite being called of God to rescue his people, he chickened out 
demanded Deborah go with him, didn't he? And he wasn't filled by God's spirit according to the scriptures either. Then after Barak, we had Gideon. But you'll remember Gideon, even though he was filled by God's spirit, he, he wasn't anything like Othniel, was he? Gideon's leadership collapsed, as we saw several weeks ago, in this quasi-monarchical-like leadership and rule in which he took many wives, and as we're told, after he had many children, which we'll note is of significance today in our story. So despite Gideon's being used by God to save Israel, his rule reflected God's people's continued Canaanization, spiritual assimilation of pagan practices as Israel dropped even further into the chasm with Abimelech's rise to power. And church, I hope you can see just in that brief reminder of all those whom we've seen, this decay, moral decay and social degradation that I believe our author was so desperate to convey. Because if the primary focus of the book of Judges is to proclaim God's great salvation, and I believe it is, then a secondary theme is most certainly the danger of spiritual assimilation. Because when God walked his people into the promised land, he warned them from the get-go of the temptation that the land's idols posed. As Joshua stood with the people of the Lord, out of all places, Shechem, recorded in Joshua 24, when God stood with his people at Shechem, he proposed and restated, Joshua did, he restated for them God's commands to fear him and to follow him alone. Throw away all the gods that are in the land. Drive out their inhabitants in their entirety so that Canaan's idols will not serve as a trap for you. And if you recall, the people quickly agreed, didn't they? Even after Joshua told them straight up, you're not able to do this. You are not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn on you and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. And isn't that exactly what we've seen the book of Judges record? As Israel failed to remove Canaan's inhabitants, their idol worship became this constant thorn in God's people's sides. And so we saw this cycle begin, which we noted back when we looked at Othniel, where Israel sins and Yahweh's angry. Israel cries out, Yahweh raises up a deliverer, after which we saw Israel oppressed and description of the oppressor and Yahweh's power also described, followed by the opportunity given to Israel and Yahweh's gift that provided that opportunity. Now, what we didn't note when we were looking at these then was how in each failure that followed God's grace, Israel's wickedness grew more overt in its expression, which is evidenced most clearly in Abimelech's abominable fratricide. And church, I believe that that moral regression captured there is mirrored in our nation in ways that are frightening. And I'm not simply being old-fashioned when, when I say that things there are things today that are accepted that would never have even been mentioned some 50 years ago. California's school system's recent adoption or proposed adoption of a new sex education plan, which is little more than the agenda of the LGBT community. New York City's recent acceptance and voting in to being of law of the open abortion bill, as well as the Supreme Court's decisions regarding marriage, those are just the tip of the iceberg. Now, don't misunderstand. These celebrated, now legalized behaviors, biblically defined as sin, aren't new. They're not new. America's been marred by sinful behavior from before we were even constituted as a nation. The issue isn't new because sin isn't new. 
But what has changed, sadly, is culture's attitude towards it. What used to occur behind closed doors now takes place in the public square, celebrated in the public square. And that's, that's the warning that I believe our author here in Judges was keen to convey so that we might be warned, church. We can't make concessions to sin and then expect an outcome unlike that of Israel because we're no different than Israel. We're no better. We're just as broken, just as depraved, just as prone to chase after the idols who are popular in whatever culture it is we find ourselves. It's a reality evidenced, I believe, by the many churches in our nation championing these changes as if they're progress. Just recently, the, the evidence of this is given in the Methodist denominations, votes and whatnot that took place, where our nations, where our nation's churches, the Methodist churches, were the ones promoting change. And it was the world that stepped in and said, no, we see these evidences all around us, church. And as we consider these things, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, what idols have we failed to remove? Now, are there things in our lives that we've chosen to overlook for the sake of convenience or pragmatics? Have we settled down with sin next door? Convinced we're strong enough. We can handle, we can stand the temptation that these things pose. Chapter 10 opens with this phrase establishing Israel's sin-sick moral status with those words, after the time of Abimelech. And we're then introduced to our man Tola of Issachar, son of Pua, son of Dodo. Great. What's fascinating here, I believe, about our judge's name, Tola, Tola means, you're going to love this, Tola means worm. Worm, isn't that awesome? I'm not kidding. It means worm. And this is a not-so-subtle character comparison when you consider his predecessor's name's meaning. You remember when we talked about Abimelech? What did Abimelech mean? My father is what? King. <laughs> so following the pride-marred rule of Abimelech, we meet lowly worm, an Issacharite, the son of Pua and grandson of Dodo. And there's very little known about either of these two men, although scholars believe that their mention here likely demonstrates that they were prominent in their day. And so we have Tola, a man of humble title, apparent noble heritage, whose achievements are rendered for us by three verbal expressions. First of all, we're told that he rose to save Israel. He rose to save Israel. And in this combination of these two verbs, to arise and to save, I believe we see a reflection to the roles filled by both Othniel as well as Ehud earlier, where our, Othniel, our author reminded us in the case of Othniel that when the people cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up for them, arose for them a deliverer. That's in Judges 3, verse 9. And then with Ehud, we saw that the Israelites again cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer or a savior to save that verb incorporated, Judges 3, 15. Now, what's different here, Judges 10, for us, is that in regards to Tola's rule, there's no reference to Yahweh, is there? Or to the enemy from which he saved them. And it's also curious that Israel needs saving, considering the fact that Abimelech, fellow countrymen, has been in charge. And church, it's here that I believe our author provides us with a subtle word of warning that we'd be wise to heed. Just because God's people aren't being attacked by external enemies doesn't mean that they are experiencing his favor. Just because God's people aren't being attacked by external enemies doesn't mean that they are experiencing His favor. Because in other words, the decadence of our culture today cannot necessarily be attributed to God's blessing. 
As you think about it, when Israel arrived in Canaan, they were nomads, weren't they? They were, they were desert-dwelling sheep herders. They had no permanence, no urban centers, no literature to speak of or cultural prominence. What they had was a faith unique in the world in which they worshipped a God who could not be seen and of whom no idol could be made. The material blessing of Israel grew as they settled in Canaan. Sadly, much of it came as they acquired, or as they, that they came to acquire, often reflected the influence of Canaan's pagan religions. And so, as we saw last week, after Abimelech, even though Israel wasn't under the thumb of an external power, they weren't in right relationship with the Lord, were they? They were captives to sin, and thus Tola's described as arising to save Israel. And church, I believe we have got to be on our guard similarly against our adversaries' wiles that we don't allow the sinful practices of our culture to impact our understanding of who God has called us to be. Because it is so tempting today to see the church through American individualist, capitalist, Republican lenses and believe that if we are targeting a specific unreached people group, if we're growing in our attendance, seeing an increase in our giving, noting the social impact and awareness of our church in our community through our outreach efforts, that we're therefore experiencing God's favor. When all the while, we remain enslaved to sin as divorce racks the church's marriages, as pornography mars its men's minds, and instead of speaking words that edify, we backbite when we're gathered together, and we build walls of separation. Church, slavery doesn't have to equate to iron shackles and cold prison cells. In Israel's case, their bindings were soft, weren't they? Their penitentiaries, if you will, were plush. So the first expression that we're given there of Tola's achievement is that he arose and saved. The second comes in verse 2, where we read that he lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. In the original language of the Old Testament, that verb our NIV renders as lived is one that carries with it a sense of ruling or of reigning. And this is the same term that we see used back in chapter 8, verse 29, in reference to Gideon, who we were told uh, in verse 29 there, went back home to live. And as we saw together, that living was marked by ruling. So this is a word, men, that we might use were we to speak Hebrew today of our living at home. It's where we rule, right? It's where we reign in submission to our wives who sit beside us. The Tola ruled in Shamir. It's a town whose exact location remains unknown. However, we do know, and this is cool, that it was in the hill country of Ephraim. The fact, I believe, enhances the contrast our author has already given us between Abimelech and Tola in their names. Because Ephraim was the tribe across the border from Shechem. So just as Tola's name reflected the opposite of Abimelech, so too was his seat of power the exact opposite side of the border of Abimelech's. So you have Tola who arose and saved, he ruled, and then the third thing he did was he led, we're told, Israel. He led Israel. And this term may also be translated, depending on, on your version of the scriptures, as judged or governed. And it carries with it a sense of judicial action on behalf of others. And so like Othniel and Ehud and Deborah before him, it seems that Tola served as God's spokesman regarding the people's behavior in light of God's law. And he did so for some 23 years. And church, I, I find it quite telling here that our author presents Tola's tenure 
with details as broad and as, as unspecific as he lived. He governed, he died, and he was buried. You notice there's no mention of insurrection, moral failings, multiple wives, apostasy, which suggests to me his was an orderly and stable rule, despite the fact that he's called to save Israel from themselves. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how hard that must have been to confront family and friends, neighbors who are living in sin, calling them to account? Now, there is certainly much emotion and moral and relational complexity and heartache hidden within these summary statements, and yet in their simplicity. I believe our author desired for us as his readers to, to see the truth that God's grace follows failure. After Abimelech's abominable rule, Yahweh raised up Tola for the saving mission. And Emmanuel, isn't that the glory of our God? As one theologian notes, he doesn't allow blasting to go on forever. He doesn't allow his people to be trampled ad infinitum. He, but his way is after the valley of the shadow to anoint our heads with oil. After sorrow and sighing to grant joy and gladness. Yahweh is the gracious God who never allows Abimelech to be his people's final word. Friends, have you failed? And is there sin in your life that may be masked by material abundance? Are you distracting yourself potentially from the elephant, so to speak, in the room by fixing your eyes on the extravagance of that room's decor? You know, when I was in high school, I remember how my friends and I would often get together, we guys, to play basketball or some other activity outdoors, which inevitably in the hot African sun would lead to much profuse sweating. And on occasion, our all-male activity would be followed by the opportune interaction with females. Now, aware of our nastiness, because we were teenagers, but we knew, we boys would address this need with what we called a Turkish bath. No offense to anyone from the land of Turkey, but the Turkish bath didn't involve water, which was a good thing, because we seemed to be perpetually in drought, or soap, which was also something in short supply. Unfortunately for the girls, it simply involved covering oneself in strong-smelling perfume, deodorant. Now, unbeknownst to we Turkish bathers, the real issue was never resolved. And all we succeeded in doing was offending more people due to the pungency of the perfume we poured on. What we needed wasn't a stronger scent, was it? We needed a shower. Have you been washed clean by Christ? Have you been given that clean sheet of paper like we talked about with our children? Or are you still trying to spray on the odor of good deeds? Or philanthropic giving? Or sincerity? in religious activity. God's grace, church, follows failure. And this is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? God's grace covers our sin in its entirety, completely removing it altogether. In His forgiveness, God doesn't mask our sin. He, he doesn't set it aside like we often do with grievances where we pretend that they're nothing and then later on we bring them back up when the moment is right. David declared, in Psalm 103, verse 10, He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. Tola's tenure ended after 23 years, at which point we're told Jair 
took his place, revealing a picture, I believe, of people's tendency to sin. Our second truth for this morning, drawn from this text, the tendency to sin. And let me qualify this point as we begin by saying our text doesn't state explicitly that Jair's 30 sons reflected the same failings as Mark Gideon's final days. It only directly communicates the wide nature of Jair's influence evidenced by those 30 boys, which the scriptures also declare, to be fair, are a blessing from the Lord, Psalm 127. Further, the sons' 30 donkeys, their rides, don't necessarily imply corruption in their leadership. Some scholars see the donkeys as symbols of peace and prosperity since they were being ridden on and they weren't being used for labor. So there's nothing explicit in this text to warn us as readers today of our tendency to sin. However, and here I'm, I'm following a pastor theologian by the name of Ralph Dale Davis in his assessment of this text, but I believe, as he does along with others, that while this passage records no specific displeasure in Jair's rule, the fact that our author, the author of Judges, explains the existence of Gideon's 70 sons back in chapter 8 and verse 30 with these words, for he had many wives. I believe that this suggests in the least that this action resulting in these 70 sons was displeasing to the Lord because he had designed marriage to be between one man and one woman as given us in Genesis 2.24. And Gideon's actions in this led or resulted in the circumstances as we know that made Abimelech's entire fiasco possible. Further, in Gideon's actions following the Israelites' request that he rule over them, he displayed an attraction to material extravagance, didn't he? As he called for Israel's men each to give him an earring, and that collection amounted to some 50 pounds of gold, which he then supplemented with ornaments and pendants and the purple garments of Midian's defeated kings. And so in both of those actions, I believe Gideon demonstrated a passion for personal glory and wealth over Yahweh and his command. And therefore, if, if Gideon's moral failings resulted in God's judgment on Israel through the leadership of Abimelech, who was the product of one of those moral failings, why else then would Judge's author note only this fact that he had 30 sons, only this fact about Jair other than to warn us we who read this text today warn us of our shared proclivity to these same sins. Church, I would hope that not a one of us this morning, man or woman, is ignorant of their personal tendency to sin, specifically the sins as we've seen referenced by Gideon towards sex and money. And just a month ago, the Houston Chronicle published those three articles regarding sexual sin as it's found expression within the churches of our Southern Baptist Convention. And as many of you know, I wrote the article for this month's voice on that issue as well as addressed it in prayer from the pulpit just days after it had been released nationally. And what I, what I believe that we as people often find so shocking about these exposés is the fact that such moral failing marks men and women in leadership. As the Houston Chronicle noted, a number of big names, so-called, so in the SBC life that were caught up in these scandals. And as I dwelt on the ramifications of these revelations for our church, for our convention, our denomination as a whole, I was struck and I was saddened by how the intensity of this scandal, it seems to be intimately tied 
to the influence of those who have been implicated. Meaning, I found myself, like the rest of America, I would imagine, more disgusted by the acts and grieved for the victims when it involved these high-profile leaders than those with whom I would have been unfamiliar. You know, as if the offense of these actions in any way is enhanced or diminished by one's place in society. And church, what saddened me about this thought was the fact that it reflects an attitude I believe is widely held in society today, that we have differing scales for different people. For some reason, we hold those who are in leadership to higher moral standards than we do the common man or woman, as if there are multiple moral metrics by which we all will one day be evaluated. Now, I'm not saying that those who are in positions of influence aren't held to account commensurate with the influence that they possess. The scriptures are very clear. James chapter 3, verse 1, those who teach will be judged more strictly. But that said, we shouldn't be less offended or grieved over these horrific moral failings were they to be have committed by a regular member of the church when it's other compared to the pastor. And the point is that these acts are simply heinous. They're abominable in God's eyes, and therefore we can't turn a blind eye to them no matter who the perpetrator or the victim is. Sin's offense is so great, church, that its atonement costs Christ's life. And sadly, we tend to sensationalize certain sins based on who commits the act and, and how many are, are impacted by its performance. And this leads to the erroneous belief that we as sinners aren't all that bad, or at least not as bad as some, when we haven't erred in these select ways. And to this point, you'll hear people describe themselves as, well, I'm pretty good because I haven't killed anybody or robbed a bank lately. And for this reason, we view ourselves as deserving at some level God's favor, meriting His goodness, justly falling under His care. But friends, the Scriptures destroy these lies when they declare that all wrongdoing is sin and that no sin, there is no sin that doesn't lead to death. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And this is the dilemma into which we are all born. And there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to change it. Left to ourselves, the brokenness that marks our world would have long since overrun it. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, sent His only Son, who is like us in every way but without sin. In Christ, God destroyed sin's power. And He gave life to us through faith. This is the gospel. So when God opens our eyes to sin's reality, we confess its offense. We confess its offense. We ask God to forgive us and we believe in Jesus. And from that moment on, we belong to Him. And as we work out the salvation that He has worked in us, we come to more deeply appreciate all that we've been given in that relationship with God in Christ Jesus. So, bringing that back to Tola and Jair. Friends, when we come alive in Christ, we are set free from sin. But we are not removed from sin's presence, are we? We still live in a body that bears the marks of the fall. We get sick. We hurt. You sleep on a floor at an RA Congress, you'll hurt. You struggle. You face temptation constantly, which isn't sin, but it becomes sin when we stop resisting, we begin practicing, doesn't it? Therefore, church, may we learn a lesson this morning as we close from Jair. It doesn't matter your position, leader or follower. Sin is still, as God 
warned Cain, crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must resist. And when we sin, and we will, when we sin, may we rest in God's glorious grace, which follows failure, as we see evidenced by Tozer. May we be quick to confess and seek God's forgiveness because our God whose salvation is so very great is faithful. He's faithful and just. And He will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know this grace this morning? I hope and pray that you do. I hope that you're not taking Turkish baths in hopes of overcoming God's senses when you stand before Him at judgment. Would you pray with me this morning as we close? Father, you are good. And your gospel is great because you save us by grace. Father, this is an assurance or there is an assurance that you promise as Bob reminded us earlier because it's captured in your word spoken by your disciple Jesus, Peter in response to questions asked. What must we do to be saved? Men and women broken, convicted, recognizing that life has no purpose. What must we be, or what must we do to be saved? And the response was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the gospel. And that if we believe, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, Paul tells us, you will be saved. A blessed assurance given again in your word. Not tied to sentiment, which is so subjective, but simply objectively rooted in your word. And Father, this morning we've been reminded of how your grace follows our failure. And for this, we give you praise. But Lord, we also acknowledge that we are prone to wander, to err. God, would you keep us close? Lead us to quickly seek your forgiveness and that of others when we sin so that you, God, might continue to be glorified in this place. Lord, and if there are those this morning who do not have this hope, this blessed assurance of which we're about to sing, Lord, then as we do, I pray that you would open hearts. God, lead them to ask when we talk about it as this service closes. Father, for none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And we just praise you for being a God who is a God of grace. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, we're going to conclude by singing Blessed Assurance. I hope these words are true for you. But let's stand as we close and sing together. Amen.